Buenas tardes. <laughs> I guess the response would be buenísimas tardes. I would, uh... What a joy it is to be here for the installation of my good friend Lilia Cuervo. I first met Lilia when we were both at seminary at Star King. Is this is kind of a Star King reunion here among the... and. I actually remember attending her ordination in San Jose, California. It was a sweltering afternoon in the mid-90s. I was wearing my new robe and I almost fainted from the heat. Someday I hope to attain the level of spiritual maturity to find it in my heart to forgive Lilia for that <laughs> ordination, but I'm not there yet. And though I met her in my first few days at Star King, I'd already heard about her and her pioneering work with a Spanish-speaking ministry in San Jose. And now, amazingly, a few years later, here we are on the other side of the country. Es un milagro. It's a miracle. And Lilia has lost none of her passion for spreading our liberal faith. I want to tell a little story of what happened to me when I went to seminary. Lilia's part of that story. And at one level, it's just a personal story. But at another level, it's a story that places in context Lilia's installation today, this ministry, and our struggle as Unitarian Universalists to create the movement that we long to become. When I entered seminary at Star King in Berkeley, I was 49 years old. I'd been working as a journalist in a community newspaper in Oregon, and it was in Oregon that I found Unitarian Universalism in the congregation in Eugene. A month or so into the school year at Star King, I tagged along with Lilia to visit the congregation in San Jose and attend the Spanish language worship service. And after attending there a few times, I was invited to preach. I had never delivered a sermon in my life but really couldn't say no. So the very first per sermon that I gave was in Spanish to eight people in this small room. I was scared to death, and I'm not sure I fully recovered from that trauma to this day. During my first semester, I received then an invitation to attend a gathering of ministers and seminarians in Los Gatos, but it's pronounced as Los Gatos, uh, near San Jose. I had no idea what was going on, but it was only an hour and a half away. As it turns out, this was a historic meeting of African-American ministers and smaller groups of Latino, Asian, and Native American ministers and others from minority groups in our movement. Out of that meeting emerged the group that would later become known as DRUM. And I was asked to serve on its very first steering committee. And soon, after that, I was invited to attend a week-long training for extension ministers here in Boston. In fact, it was delivered by Larry Pierce, who's among us today. I was the only seminarian there, and the UUA paid for me to cross the country and go. And then during my second semester, out of the blue, a letter from 25 Beacon Street, our headquarters, arrived with a check for $600 to help pay the cost of attending our General Assembly that year. 
That was a lot of money then, and it really helped. I'd never been to a GA. And then I was asked to participate in a GA workshop that involved a panel of Latinos in the movement. I actually think it was the first time in my life I was in the room with two Puerto Ricans. And I was still a first-year seminarian. And suddenly, everybody seemed to know who I was. Here I was, a new seminarian, getting invited to go to Boston, invited to go to General Assembly, asked to be in a General Assembly workshop, and on a first-name basis with department heads at the UUA in Boston. When I, when I graduated from seminary, I was asked to serve on the UU Ministers Association Executive Committee, and then a bit later on the Board of Trustees, and eventually joined the headquarters staff. It was all rather dizzying. Trust me, if my last name were Morris instead of Morales, none of this would have happened. Imagine my surprise to turn 50 and discover that Morales was suddenly a very fashionable last name. <laughs> and I suspect that Lilia has her own version of this story of sudden prominence in our movement. Alas, there's a sad side to this story. For my story and Lilia's stories and any number of other stories that are similar are part of our larger story. The story of our movement struggled with race, culture, and class. The opportunities we've been given are an expression of what our movement hopes to become. And as a people who are committed to justice and to acceptance of one another, we long to become something that we are not. We long to include people of different races, different cultures, different socioeconomic classes. And if you look at our publications or our website, you'd think that we are an amazingly diverse movement. We feature people of color everywhere. Yet we know that in our congregations, the reality is quite different. We remain a largely white, Anglo, upper middle class, and highly educated movement. What is especially troubling is how difficult it has been to become the multiracial, multicultural movement that we so long to be. What has happened in our professional ministry is especially telling. Forty years ago, there were almost no women in our ministry. Now, the majority of our ministers are women, and the majority of seminarians. In fact, last year, when the Ministerial Fellowship Committee met, it interviewed 19 candidates, 16 of whom were women. A generation ago, there were almost no openly gay or lesbian ministers. Now, there are so many that we have no idea what the exact number is, and they serve in some of our most prominent congregations. In most of our congregations, the thought of calling a gay or lesbian minister is simply no big deal today. That is amazing progress, progress we should celebrate. In the meantime, though, the number of African-American, Latino, Latina, Asian ministers in our movement hasn't changed much at all. The few that we have have struggled to find parish settlements, and very few have had long and successful settlements. When I left the congregation I was serving in Colorado uh, a little over a year ago to serve as UUA president, 
the number of minority senior ministers serving large congregations went from one to zero. Now with the former UA president, Bill Sinkford, going to Portland, Oregon, I'm happy to say <laughs> that we're back up to one. Why is it, why is it that, that it has been relatively easy to include women in our ministry and BGLT people in our ministry, and yet we struggle to include African Americans, Latinos, Asians, and others? And why is it that today so few people of color are in our congregations? This is an absolutely critical issue for us. How we deal with it will determine the future of our movement. And this issue of our inability to transcend race, culture, and class isn't an organizational issue. Ultimately, it's a spiritual and religious issue. It goes to the core of how we relate to one another, how we engage with our community and with the wider world. We need, I believe, a new way of understanding our situation. We need a new path forward because the old ways simply have not worked. Now, I don't pretend to have all the answers. I have, however, given this a lot of thought over the years, ever since I was first bemused by how being named Morales suddenly made me a hot item. Since then, I've been through way too many tense consultations, trainings, and gatherings dealing with anti-racism. I've seen too much pain among good people, and I've seen us confuse catharsis with progress. We have lots of catharsis and way too little progress. So let me share with you what I have come to believe and offer what I think is a way forward for our faith. First, we have failed to appreciate or understand the power of culture and social class. Let me make this personal. Bill Singford, my predecessor as UUA president, is African-American. I'm a Latino. I was born in San Antonio and spoke Spanish before I spoke English. Now, doesn't the fact that Bill and I were elected president show our faith openness to diversity? Well, yes and no. Mostly, no. First, you may have noticed that Bill and I are pretty fair of skin. More importantly, though, is that Bill and I are comfortable in the dominant UU culture. Bill went to Harvard. Someone observed, I think it's true, mentioned to me uh, that I may be the first UUA president who hasn't attended Harvard either as an undergraduate or as a divinity student, <laughs> a seminarian. Yet I, too, received an elite education. I've heard of Kant and Whitehead and Hegel even read a bit of them. I never confuse Beethoven with Haydn. I've been exposed to science and literature. I'm part of the tribe. And the same thing just happened in our national election. It's clear to me, anyway, that Barack Obama, if, if he sounded like he grew up on the streets of Chicago, would not be president of the United States. He wouldn't even have been a candidate. And if I sounded like San Antonio's West Side, where I was born, I wouldn't be UUA president. My point is that culture matters a lot. It even trumps race. Bill Sinkford and I know how to be part of the culture. 
We don't sound foreign. We know how to behave among you use, and so we don't trigger reactions of fear. Culture is huge, and so is class. Actually, the two are intertwined. The poor, those without a college education, face enormous barriers in UU culture today. And the barriers to inclusion facing poor African-American or Latinos who don't sound like us and aren't educated like us right now are simply overwhelming. There's great irony here, even tragedy. For there's nothing, absolutely nothing, in our core religious values that are linked to upper-middle-class, white, educated American culture. Think about our core values. Compassion, freedom, humility, equality, commitment to justice, the centrality of covenant and community, our recognition that we're both a part of creation and stewards of it. These religious values transcend race, they transcend culture, and they transcend class. They're the values that are affirmed by Unitarians in rural Transylvania, among poor UUs in the Philippines, and among uneducated Unitarians in India. I've attended UU worship services in everything from historic uh, sanctuaries like this one, some 300 years old, to state-of-the-art green technology sanctuaries, to primitive uh, chapels without real doors or windows in the Philippines. Our faith, obviously, isn't about buildings, but nor is our faith about forms of worship with roots in colonial New England. We need to learn to express our faith in ways that are as diverse as the architecture of our buildings. We need to learn to be in relationship with the people in our communities. Otherwise, we run the risk of becoming a tiny, elite, ethnic enclave religious movement. And that would be tragic. It would be tragic because millions of people are seeking liberal religious community, a place where they can grow spiritually, where they can raise children, where they can form deep and lasting friendships, and where they can join with others to help heal our world. And they seek a faith that will transcend the religious, racial, and cultural tribalisms that kill people every single day. I said the key challenges for us were spiritual. We have some fundamental choices to make as a movement, as individual congregations, and as individual people. We must decide on the one hand between retreating into the past or embracing change. Between a fear of change and a fear of the other on the one hand and hope on the other. Between closing ranks and looking inward on the one hand or openness on the other. Between security, a false sense of security really, on the one hand and a vulnerability an openness to others, which brings vulnerability. A choice between the past and the future. How can we move into this future that we all seek? 
How in the world can we create a multicultural, multiracial, multigenerational, even multi-class faith? Well, it's not going to happen by accident. And our track record shows that it's not going to be easy. But I'm convinced we can do it. And we're doing it. We're doing it in a number of congregations. And this congregation has committed itself to be part of that effort, and I commend you for it. This is what I believe we can do right now. We can start where we are. We build diversity by including the people who are already in sympathy with us, people who are already bicultural. These are people that we already know, co-workers, friends, people we meet in other organizations. We can celebrate the diversity that's already in our congregations. And this is typically a lot more than we think. The congregation I served in Colorado was a typical suburban, middle-class, and largely white congregation. Yet we found that when we invited people to share their stories, share their traditions, we found a diversity that we never knew had existed. Third, we can make hospitality, true religious hospitality, a collective spiritual practice. If we do, we will awaken to the opportunities that are all around us. When we see and feel the hunger for religious community that is all around us, we can't help but respond. We can let go of attachment to old ways. We can explore different styles of worship, different music, different readings, different formats. We can take some risks. You know, we make saints out of people like Theodore Parker, Ralph Waldo Emerson, Susan B. Anthony, Margaret Fuller, Hosea Ballou. These people were all troublemakers. They did not cling to the past. We honor our heritage not by worshiping these people, but by emulating them. We've got to take risks, and we have to make a little holy trouble. I may live to regret having suggested that. <laughs> and finally, we must fear not. And this may be the most important thing. This new multicultural world that we live in and that we're seeking to create in our congregations is a pretty wonderful place. And it's filled with amazing people. We don't have anything to fear. In fact, getting there is a great spiritual journey and spiritual adventure. And if we do it together, it isn't so scary. And here, here let me offer my thanks and praise in behalf of the entire movement to this congregation. Because you've taken a risk. You're breaking with some old ways. So you go, Cambridge. What you're doing is enormously important. Make trouble and find joy in your adventure. And this work that you're undertaking is the work of every congregation in our movement. This trans transformation needs to happen everywhere. I began with a little story about having suddenly found that I had a fashionable last name. I look forward to the day when a name like Morales or Jimenez, Cuervo, Garcia, Valdez, or Sanchez isn't so exceptional anymore. And I envision a time 
soon, I pray, when being an African-American from the hood or an Asian-American is pretty common in our movement. I recently saw a photo of a plywood, little plywood sign for a small food stand in Denver. I used it in a column that you may have read. The little sign says, Soul Food, African Food, Burritos. Soul Food, African Food, Burritos. That's the new America. I look forward to the time when those foods show up at our church potlucks. This is the new America, and we are called to minister to this new world. Felicitaciones, Lilia. Congratulations, Cambridge, Fred, my good colleague, for your adventuresome spirit. Together, let's build the faith that we dream of, one relationship at a time, one Sunday at a time. Together, hand in hand, mano en mano, we can make it happen. So may it be. Bendiciones.